0: Unfortunately for you, I can't share that information, so uh, I just want to, just might get your stuff heated up to about 350 at whatever restaurant you're at to be safe to kill off any bacteria you may have, so good luck with that after you go eat lunch after this, right? Oh uh, yeah, I can't share that information with you, but um, a lot of times... People have this perception about what a person does in the pest control industry, right? And a lot of times it looks like a man rides around in the back of a truck with like a hundred gallon drum of chemical and just dumps it on your yard, right? And then kind of drives off. Um, I can't tell you how many times I have been uh, told whenever I walk in, uh, nuke the place, right? Nuke this place. Um, And there's definitely a time and a place for that. Um, However, in our industry, there's a phrase that we use that is often way more efficient than just dumping chemical around. Again, there's a time and place for that. Uh, But there's a phrase that we use that's sometimes more efficient than dumping chemical. And that phrase is, eliminate the source. All right? So in many situations, we find that if you go ahead and eliminate the source or find the object or reason that that infesting pest is attracted to, you'll have way better luck stopping the issue permanently, right? Um, So, for example, let me put that into practicality for you. If you're having fly issues at your house, if you're having fly issues, um, chemical will hardly help with that, okay? Um, The best thing to do is to track down the, the items that the flies are attracted to, get rid of that. Now, chemical treatment may help temporarily, But without eliminating the source, you will find yourself in the same situation again and again. A little bit of relief, it goes away, but then it comes back again and again and happens all the time. Well, uh, what does that have to do with where we're going to be this morning? Well, whenever I was preparing, I couldn't help but think that Jesus' words in the scripture that we're going to be in today works very much like eliminating the source. Okay, looks so very much like eliminating the source. See, the people that we're going to be reading about had a very big misconception about how they viewed their relationship with God. So they had a misconception about how they viewed their relationship with God and what that looked like. And I think that we may be, uh, may be able to identify a little more with the people of the text than what we actually would care to admit. And so we're going to see time, or we're going to see in time that Jesus doesn't waste time. Um, temporarily controlling an issue. Rather, he's going to get to the heart of the matter. Um, He's not going to deal with the symptoms, but he's going to permanently take care of what's going on in our hearts. And so um, eliminating the source may be harder work to do. It may be more work and it may be uncomfortable, um, but it's the most effective option to have permanent, true freedom in our lives. And so he may offer a little bit of heavy words to us this morning, but that never comes without true hope. Um, And he always offers hope in spite of the heavy things that he said. So um, with that being said, we're going to go ahead and read. So if you want to follow along with me, we're going to be in John chapter 6, verse 1. All right? And it says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand, Lifting up his eyes then, seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to even get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy over here who has five barley loaves and two fish. So they gathered them up, filled 12 baskets with fragments, and the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who was coming to the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When the evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, and coming near the boat, they were frightened. But he said to him, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but the disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boat and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're not seeking me because of the signs you saw, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father has set his seal. Let's just go to, uh, go to God in prayer one more time. All right. Father, I just ask you to do a work that only you can. I pray that you would encourage us, that we would look more and more like you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to not only understand these words and have the knowledge, but to help them apply them to our lives. And that's something that only you can do. And Lord, we're trusting in you this morning, and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, so again, we don't have have time to unpack everything from this chapter, but here are a few important things that happen that will line up the focal text for this morning. I'm going to leave some of what I read out, okay? In chapter 5, we didn't read chapter 5, but in chapter 5 previously, Jesus had been in Jerusalem healing the sick. And at this point, many people had heard and seen Jesus and the signs that he had been doing because he had been doing them for some time. Now, we remember that the purpose of these signs were not simply magic tricks to kind of draw up a crowd, right? Um, To kind of entertain everybody, but they were meant to give further testimony to the claims that Jesus made about being sent from God, by God, that he was the son of God, and that this is a little bit more controversial, that he had equality with God. So um, he he created kind of a stir up in chapter 5 when he claimed equality with God. That did not go over well with the people. Many people who had witnessed Jesus perform these signs of healing followed him to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, right? So, um, again, who wouldn't? They're doing a lot of crazy stuff, so they're going to follow him over there. And and the text says in verse 2, And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And again, who wouldn't? People are getting sick. Lame people are walking. Who wouldn't follow him over there? I definitely would, right? Um, You see a man making lame people walk. You're going to follow him. That's what you naturally do. Well, after this, Jesus met with his disciples, and it was a pretty large crowd. It said about 5,000 men, which probably included their wives and maybe some of their kids, and they were coming towards him. Now, this particular account doesn't say, but we can assume that Jesus had compassion on them, and he didn't want to send them away hungry. Why? Because they probably made quite the journey to see him. I mean, they're traveling by boat and foot for long periods of time just to see Jesus and what he's about. So after a brief interaction with his disciples who basically told him, mind you, that um, I don't know if you've checked our bank account lately, but we don't, we don't have the money to feed all these people, right? We're definitely going to overdraft um, in our account. So we're, we're, we're not going to have the money to feed this. I don't know if you saw what's going on here, but it says that Jesus already knew what he was going to do, um, took already existing five loaves of bread and two fish, and then he gave thanks for it. He blessed it. And this miraculously turned this small amount of food into an overwhelming amount of food, right? So it wasn't just enough for them to have a few bites to keep them alive from falling over. It said that they ate their fill until they were full. And not only that, they had some left over. So Jesus had just performed this huge sign for them. um, And he did a work that is only reserved for a God, or the God to do. Um, He created something out of basically nothing. And not only did he create something out of basically nothing, right, he gave them far above more than what they could ever want or ask. And that is the character of the God that we serve. And Jesus had just done this for them. So after Jesus had done the sign, the people were amazed. And again, who wouldn't be? The text says in verse 14, When the people saw the signs that he had done, they said, This indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. Now what happens next is a little peculiar, even a little confusing. At least whenever I read it, I was like, huh, never thought of it like this before. Verse 15 says that, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So we see that after the sign had been completed and he'd done this miraculous work, the people had their fill, and then what? They believed in him. The people had their fill, and they believed in who Jesus was. Not only did they believe, there was a response from Jesus to their belief. So we had a miracle, we had belief, and then we had a response from our Lord to the people. First, let's look at How do we know the people truly believed in Jesus? Well, that's because verse 14 tells us that they did, right? So when describing Jesus, they didn't say a prophet. They didn't say a prophet has come into the world. Instead, they said the prophet has come into the world, And uh, what's interesting about the word that is used here in the original text, the word for prophet, is the same word used to describe Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verse 3. It literally translates to the Son of God. Now keep in mind that the people here had been told of God's redemptive plan their entire lives and how God was going to send a Savior into the world to rescue them. They were, in fact, a little off on what that would mean for them, by the way, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But, in fact, they had heard that God would send a Savior their entire lives. And the term Son of God was nothing new to them. They knew that God in flesh would come to earth and save them. So it was not a new term. So not only had they heard Jesus claiming he had equality with God, claimed to be from God, they also accepted the testimony of the signs Jesus did, and the text says that they, in response to all of these things, collectively believed in him. So again, what was so strange about the way that Jesus responded? Because it wasn't strange that they actually believed in Jesus. It was strange how, they res- or how Jesus responded to their belief. Well, Jesus had spent and will continue to spend time inviting people to believe in him. He did that then. He does that today. He often told them to believe in the work that he was doing and would even tell them in a few verses after this specific instance that to believe in God's work or to do God's work was to believe in the one whom God has sent, which was Jesus Christ. So God's work is not to do, God's work is to believe. So after all this time, Jesus has spent inviting people to believe in him wouldn't you think that the proper response would be to accept that title as king and, and believe, right? To accept that and say, okay, now you believe. I know if uh, all of you rushed me to make me king, I would gladly accept. I just want to let you know that right now if it happened. I mean, I'm your king, all right? So you would think the man who was truly king, who came to earth to be believed in, who's been bidding people to believe in him, are wanting to make him king because they believe, don't you think it's just a little strange how Jesus would respond? After all, that was the very purpose of him coming, was to be believed in. But did Jesus accept the title that the people wanted to give him in the praise of those people? No, he didn't. In fact, what's strange is the opposite happened. He ran from it. The Bible says he fleed from it. So why would he do that? Why would he spend all this time asking people to believe and then when they finally do, they accept who he is, he flees from them. Now, a summarizing the response would be that his work had not been completed yet, right? He still had to willingly be delivered over to the people. He had to die on the cross to make atonement for our sins. So you could say that his work had not been finished, and that would be true. He couldn't accept that right now because his time had not yet come. But I think that he reveals in just a little bit longer there is another reason why he didn't accept their belief. Yeah, I think that's found in verse 22 through 25. So let's, let's read 22 through 25. It says, On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there his disciples, they themselves got into the boat and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found Jesus, or when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? And then we're going to stop right there for a minute. So now we see that the crowd had caught up with Jesus the following day. He did the miracle. The next day, they finally found him, and they're like, uh, hey, what happened to you? You remember yesterday when we were going to make you our king? We were going to give you authority over all of us? Um, Yeah. What happened to that? What happened to you? Um, Now it's time for Jesus to answer that question with eliminating the source, getting to the true heart of the matter, right? Um, Verse 26 says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. So in reading this, I think it's safe to say that we see why Jesus was so quick to shut down their motives to make him king and walk away in that moment. Now it was not that the people had believed in him well, it's not, that's not why Jesus rejected them, it's because they believed. So it wasn't their belief in Jesus, which is why he rejected them. It was the motivation behind why they believed um, and wanted to make him king. So Jesus basically said to them, you're not seeking me because of who I really am and what I have to offer you. You're seeking me because of the earthly stuff that I'm doing for you. And this reminds me of in school, in school, There was this kid that had a pool, right? You were friends with that kid because he had a pool, am I right? You weren't necessarily interested in friendship with the kid, but the kid had a pool. And if you've lived in Texas in July, at any point in your life, you want a friend with a pool. And again, you may not even really like the guy. Nobody really did. He was actually kind of bossy. Right? But he had a pool, so you took it and you didn't want to ruin that. People didn't pursue right relationship with this kid because they were interested in him. They were only interested in his things. And that's kind of the same thing that the crowd is doing to Jesus here. What this reveals is that people had all of the right information, all of the right knowledge, but all of the wrong motivation for being in relationship with God. They had all the right information, But all the wrong motivation for seeking a relationship with God. They didn't want Jesus for who he really was. They just wanted to see some more tricks. They just wanted to have their fill of bread. And that was the only reason why they sought him. So let's dig a little bit deeper. Where exactly did the people go wrong? Where did the crowd go wrong? Because they did believe in him, right? And Jesus seemed to be a little bit harsh towards them. So where did they go wrong? Well, we're going to get to that. But first, there are a few things that we could look at that they didn't necessarily do wrong. In fact, they did correct. They did correctly. So one thing that they didn't necessarily do wrong, they weren't wrong for having needs. They weren't wrong for having needs. They weren't wrong for being hungry. They weren't wrong for being sick. Right? We see that Jesus compassionately met their needs. Guys, God knows that we have needs. He knows we need food. He knows we need clothing. He knows we have a mortgage. He knows we need a job. He knows we need a vehicle. He knows we need medicine. We need healing. He knows these things. And it is not wrong for you and for me to have these needs. That is not where they went wrong. Sometimes as Christians, I think we start to feel like a little selfish because we have needs and we have things that we need on this earth. But God knows that we have them and it's okay that we have them. They didn't go wrong for having a need. They weren't wrong for seeking Jesus or God to meet those needs. So they weren't wrong for having it. And they didn't go wrong by seeking Jesus to meet it. It wasn't as though Jesus condemned them for looking at him to feed them or to heal them, right? He didn't say, how dare you come to me for food. As a matter of fact, they didn't ask Jesus for food. He just did it, right? He compassionately did it. So they weren't wrong for looking to Jesus to meet those needs. Scripture overwhelmingly bids us to come to God with our needs and that he knows what we need before we even ask it. And he tells us not to worry about our needs being met because we have a God who loves to take care of his children. So it's not that they had a need. It's not that they looked to God to meet their need. You don't have to be guilty or feel guilty for looking to God to meet your need. This is where they went wrong. They were more focused on their earthly need and less concerned about their spiritual need, which is the whole reason Why Jesus came, the true reason why Jesus came. Jesus knew they needed physical bread. He knew that they were hungry, he knew they needed to be healed, but he also knew they needed spiritual bread. He knew they needed to be restored back into right relationship with God. He knew that there was a barrier between the people and their God, and it needed to be destroyed. That is the reason why he came not to fill our stomachs. He came to meet the people's spiritual hunger. See, the issue was that the crowd wasn't interested in that. They weren't interested in addressing the heart issues that go deep down in our lives. So earlier, we mentioned that the people spent their whole life, their whole life, hearing of God's redemptive plan for them. They knew there was a Savior to come into the world. However, they didn't have a good understanding of what that looked like for them individually. See, They were under the impression that the Savior would be a large political force who would ransom them from the captivity of other nations because they had been under the harsh uh, rule of the Roman Empire. And they were looking to God to restore their prosperity as a nation collectively to make them a driving political force again. See, they understood the Savior to be someone who would make Israel great again. All right? See what I did there? It had nothing to do with the Bible thing, so... What they didn't see was that the Savior had a much deeper, much bigger agenda. It was to redeem their souls and to feed their spiritual hunger, not necessarily fill their stomachs. And the problem was they wanted earthly blessing more than wanted spiritual rebirth. Now, that's terrible, isn't it? Who in the world would do something like that? Well, if I'm honest... And I have to be, not because I'm only in church. I'm guilty of this as well. Maybe some of you can identify the same way. Maybe you're realizing it for the first time. Maybe you've realized in the past. Maybe some of you, your eyes will be open to the fact that, that we're all guilty of this. I think that it's a symptom of our fallen nature to fall in love with the created and not the creator, right? I think that we sometimes enjoy the gifts more than we enjoy the giver. It's a natural state of the fallen heart. And what Jesus is doing here, he's, doing, or he's reminding us of the warfare because it is a war and it's required for us to not fall in the same logic that the people in the crowd um, did, which is have wrong motivations for seeking God. Because at the end of the day, that's what they did. They had the wrong motivation for seeking God. So we see throughout the Bible, even in our lives today, I've got people in my life, and I've seen this pattern in my own life, they have wrong motivations for seeking relationship with God. If we seek God for the wrong reasons, we are out of sync with God's relational plan for our lives because there was a relationship there. If we seek God for the wrong motivation, then we're out of that relational plan, and there can be consequences to that. There are consequences for seeking God for the wrong motivation. Now, by consequences, I don't necessarily mean the heavy eternal punishment. Now, if you don't truly know Christ, and you only seek God for self-gratification, and you don't truly place faith in Jesus, then yes, that is a consequence. Eternal separation from a loving God. But that's not necessarily what I'm talking about. The things that I'm mentioning, the consequences believers can fall into as well. The consequences will keep us from living our spiritual lives the way that God intends for us, and they bring about negative results. Now, what are some of these results of seeking God for the wrong motivation? Well, there's probably plenty, but I've got two. Technically three, but I've smushed two together to make it look shorter. All right, But I've got two, and these are major. All right, And this is probably the worst one. We never come to know God for who he truly is, or his will for our lives. We only get a self-perceived God who exists to further our plans, our desires, our motivations, our abilities, our passions. And he serves more of as a genie in a bottle, right? I mean, we want our wishes, but that's all we want from him. So if we seek God for the wrong motivation, we don't know the God of the Bible whose character has been established long before this world began, right? Right? But instead, we make him a God in which it only exists to gratify us in our plans. And the reason why that is dangerous is because God has a good plan for our lives, and it involves him. His plan. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Not I know your plans, and I'm going to make them happen. Right? So that's that's One. The second one I can identify with 100%, and it's a daily battle for me. We end up following God out of guilt and fear. So let's talk about guilt for a minute. By guilt, I mean that we only do Christian things like prayer, going to life group, serving in the nursery, reading scripture, because we know we should. There's no joy. There's no fruit in what we do. We're not truly serving anybody. We just know that if we don't do these things, we are going to feel guilty, and we want to check it off our list so we don't feel as guilty. If I'm being honest, I'm guilty of that sometimes. So that's guilt. By fear, I mean we live in a constant state of fear that we'll be judged by God and others if we don't do these specific things. So what that means is, if I don't do XYZ, God's going to condemn me. But even worse, other Christians around me are going to go, I mean, have you seen that guy? Is he even really a Christian? And that becomes your motivating factor, just to look good around other people. And none of these represent freedom in Christ. That is not what Jesus purchased for us, to, to live and serve him out of guilt and out of fear. Now, I'm not saying that sometimes we have to muster up some motivation to do what God has asked to do. I'm not saying that it's not hard and that we're just on cloud nine going, oh, thank you, God, I get to go to Africa and maybe get my head chopped off for the gospel, right? That's not exactly what I'm talking about here, right? There are things that we have to do that we're not, abs- we're not actually, you know, at the time, feeling, but we do it out of obedience, knowing that God will meet the need for us. But none of these represent the freedom we have in Christ. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a personal example. And this is a pretty personal example, if I'm going to be honest, all right? Um, I can remember a time, and it was not too long ago, that I had learned how much I truly identify with this crowd um, that Jesus was addressing. So um, some of you know this, but before um, my wife and I started coming to Grace, I had been on staff at a church plant in Freeport, and at the beginning, I remember thinking, oh man, these are all the plans and expectations I have for this specific thing. Um, everything good is going to happen while I'm here. Um, God's going to use me in big ways. I was going to grow the student ministry because I was the student pastor. My wife and I are going to make all of these sacrifices for the sake of ministry, and everybody's going to see how good things are going down there. See, the problem was, I ended up resigning after Two months. Two months of being on staff. Like, you don't even get benefits at a place in two months, right? There were a few things that were out of my control, and I'm not going to get into those because it's not necessary. But in summary, starting out, there were some red flags. Starting out I hadn't really count the cost and realized how difficult it truly was to start a church plant, especially a financially unestablished church plant. So what that meant is I had to raise my own salary. So there was a time where my wife was the only one bringing a paycheck in. And I was having to go have these these, uh, meetings and set up time for people to, um, you know, donate to the cause, if you will, and pay my salary to be able to do this. So I had to raise my own financial support and I wouldn't get that paycheck. So that... It was kind of a difficult place, um, and we didn't see an end in sight with that, to be honest. Um, right after we ex- I accepted the position, I found out that we were having a baby. So not only had I just given up a, a job that I was pretty secure at, not only did I not have a paycheck coming anymore, I now had a baby on the way, and I had to figure out a way to make all of that work. So that added its amount of stress. Then on top of that, the amount of work was overwhelming. And the standard that I was being held to the leadership at that church was backbreaking, And it was tough. So in two months, I quit. And to be honest, it all happened so fast, I didn't even take time to contemplate it. I just knew I needed to get out of that situation. That's exactly what I did, right? Well, about a month or so, after I had left I'd been coming here um, I started feeling the weight and started thinking about everything that actually happened and I got very depressed Right, I started to feel like the utmost failure and a couple guys in this room walked with me through that process Right, and I'm really thankful for that but it was a very dark time in my life because I remember thinking God I have made all these sacrifices for you right this is, this is how you're going to repay me right? What happened to me making a difference? What happened to me growing a student ministry and reaching all these people? What happened to me changing a community? Well, over time, even though I redirected all my frustration and blamed God for that, going, hey, what about me? God lovingly showed me that I had not only been wrong or had the wrong motivations for taking the job, but I had very unhealthy motivation as to why I had ever been in ministry ever in my life. See, all this time, I had been so focused on what I would do. And I had a true identity crisis going on. All along, I'd been doing ministry for several years even before that, not because I loved God, not because I loved the people who I worked with necessarily. I mean, I, had, I loved God and loved the people, but that wasn't the motivating factor behind. I didn't necessarily care as much about the people I was reaching out to. It was just something that I was good at, I guess. And I hardly even say good. It was a path that I had taken, and that was it. It was a, a career move in a sense. And I also learned that I'd been doing everything out of guilt and out of fear. And I was always wondering, okay, What's God or other believers going to think of me or my family if I don't do these things? If I don't make these sacrifices? And I picked up my family and I moved from a place we like to live in Lake Jackson to a place I didn't want to move to. And I'll just be honest with you. And I only did it because I didn't want to be judged by other people for not doing it. Um, and that, that was my motivating factor. And we had a lot of red flags from the beginning. And some people that I loved including my wife, sat down with me and they said, I don't think this is a good idea. And they try to show me why. But in my mind, I just quickly shut them out because I was holy, right? And uh, I was so afraid of being condemned by God and being judged for others for not making these sacrifices. Now, I just quickly want to say, God calls us to make sacrifices, and we should, and it's uncomfortable. So it's not necessarily the sacrifices. I went wrong by making sacrifices. It's my motivation behind it. I don't want to give off any impression that God doesn't ask us to do hard things. It was my motivation as to why I did it that was unhealthy. I had even taken good, godly things like ministry and made them serve my purpose. I wanted God to bless me and make me feel good about myself in the work I did. But to be honest, I was hardly focused on Jesus and bringing him glory. And after I fell, I failed and had to resign. I mean, it all came crashing down, and I was just angry at God. But thankfully, by his grace, he helped me see the problem that existed long before I took that position in Freeport or got into ministry in general. He showed me how often I sought him for my immediate gratification, not to truly know him and have a relationship with him, and to make him known, but for me. So, we've heard some of the results of wrong motiv- motivations. Well, let's talk about the right ones because there are right motivations for seeking God, and we are to constantly be striving for these all of the time. I can think of three important results of seeking God for right motivations, and the first one is the most important. A result of seeking God with the right motivation is we are restored in the right relationship with him. What that means is we are forgiven for our past, our present, and our future sins forever. Amen. That also means we have the boldness, even though we are flawed and not perfect, to stand before him in prayer, go to his throne, and ask him for things. We couldn't do that without going through all the bells and whistles before, right? Right? But now we have boldness to approach him in prayer. And lastly, this also means that our works, no matter how flawed they are, no matter how we perform them imperfectly, our works are now acceptable to God, even though they're flawed, because Jesus made that happen for us. The works that we go do when we leave this building today, they may be flawed, and you may not do them perfectly, but they are acceptable to God because of the work that Jesus did on the cross for us. So that's the first one. We're restored into right relationship with him. The second one, we get in strength, we get strength to endure trials and hardships. Guys, we see examples in the Bible and we probably have people personally in our lives who turned away from trusting God when things went bad for them they had a false motivation for seeking God in the first place, which looked a lot like thinking, if I follow God, everything will be great, everything will be prosperous for me, and everything's smooth sailing, right? And that's a a message we hear often in our culture, if I'm honest, that if you follow God, everything will go smooth for you. Then some kind of hardship came along, and they say, well, This isn't what I thought it to be or this isn't what I heard it to be or understood it to be. And then they turn their back on God. And they say, like, if if God is real, he wouldn't let things like this happen. See, if they had the correct motivation, they would see that God is present in our hurting and has a purpose for it in our lives. And it will happen to everybody in this room. You will have trials And you will have hardships. But they're not meaningless and God is with you in them. So that is a result of seeking God for the right motivation. Because if you seek God for the wrong motivation, you miss the entirety of the Bible that tells you you will have problems. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And lastly, God will provide your physical needs. God will provide our physical needs. He may not do it the way we think. He may not do it the way that we want Or in the time in which we get it. But he will do it. And the most ironic thing about this crowd, if you go down to verse 66, we're not going to go that far in the reading, but in verse 66, after Jesus had said many hard things to them, they turned their back on him. They hardened their hearts, they suppressed their belief in Jesus, and they walked away because he didn't tell them exactly what they wanted to hear. And the most ironic thing about it, it was all over food, and the, the irony in it is that when you seek God for spiritual needs to be met, the physical is the easy part. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and everything else will be added to you. Matthew 6.33. And Jesus said this in response to an anxious people who wonder, how am I going to get food? How am I going to get clothing? How am I going to pay my rent? Right? If you seek God for his righteousness... And for your spiritual need, the earthly need is the easiest part. And, or the earthly need is the easier part. Because God is abundant in resources. And I think that every Christ follower in here can really stand up here. We'd be here all day if they said how, how God pulled through for them in one day or one way or another. And they had no idea how it was going to happen. But it did. I would be up here all day myself. All right? But I'm getting hungry, so we're going to move on. All right? So we've seen how people sought Jesus for the wrong motivation. We've seen how they were more concerned for their physical needs to be met and less about their spiritual needs. We've looked at the results of seeking God for the wrong motivation and the results of seeking God for the right motivation. We've seen how Jesus gets to the heart of the people's action and our actions. Now we're going to see the remedy that Jesus offers him and to us. So verse 27 through 29, we're going to pick it up right here. And it says this. It says, um, Do not work for the food that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of God will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him and in who he has sent. Well, See, up to this point, the people had been working, or a better way to say that would be acquiring a way to get food. So they had been working and trying to acquire food or healing. They had been, as we read, that had been, why, uh, as we read, the main reason why they had come to Jesus in the first place, because the miracles he performed. Well, then Jesus tells them something. He says, look, and I'm paraphrasing, don't work so hard for food that spoils or becomes rotten. Instead, work for food that can never perish, but leads to eternal life. A food that I alone can give you. And next we see the people somewhat confused by his words, right? They're like, uh, I don't know what that means necessarily. Respond very much in the way that we as human beings do. What must we do? We're always wanting to do. What must we do to be doing the works of God? We always want to do, and we always, always want to fix ourselves. So we've seen that this was a huge problem with the Jewish people this entire time. Um, That if they did certain things, if they followed certain religious laws, then they would finally be able to earn their favor with God, and if they didn't, then they would just be cut out. They had this mentality probably their entire lives. So to say the least, they were ready to do some fixing. Jesus, tell me what I should do to be doing the works of God. And Jesus' response is astounding. He says, he doesn't respond to them by saying, you need to go fix yourselves, right? Come do more, go work on yourselves, come back to me when you're ready. He doesn't say that. In fact, whenever they say, what must we be doing to do the works of God? He responds with a simple, the works of God are not to go do, but to believe. The works of God are to not go do, but to believe in the one who he has sent. To trust in the one who he has sent. Jesus didn't suggest for them to go reform their behavior But instead, he knew they had no power to do that in themselves, so he just bid them to believe, knowing that if you believe in Jesus, your behavior will change, not the other way around, which is what we naturally want to do, right? They had a heart issue that going to the synagogue, helping little old ladies across the street with their groceries, giving a, a guy on the street $5 to eat, they had an issue that those things could not... No matter how hard they tried. Remember, they had plenty of religious laws already, plenty of things to do. They spent a lot of time doing works. Jesus told them that instead of going to do things to earn their right standing with God, they must simply believe in the one whom God has sent, which is Jesus Himself. Not only for what He did, but for who He is. And that's amazing. What this means is that instead of spending our time working so hard to obtain earthly success and right standing with God by our religious works, if we finally just do the things that God asks us to do, we're finally going to have some prosperity and success. Instead of that, we need to recognize that we need to be saved and trust in Jesus to do that work for us. Because that's not a work that we can do on our own. So what does it look like for all of us in this room to be doing the works of God? Believe believe in his son who did everything for you and everything else will come about your behavior will change but not until you believe and rest that he had done everything you need to do to get into heaven because if you don't trust in that you're going to be working until you're so burdened and you're going to try and try and try and you may just give up and that's what the people did they gave up See, trusting in the works of Jesus frees us from false motivations for following God. It reminds us that we are not the center of the universe, but God is. It reminds us that God is with us. There is no longer that bridge or barrier between, between us. Sorry, not a bridge, a barrier between us. And we can be forgiven and loved in the midst of our sin right now, in the midst of our shortcomings and our problems and our hardships. It reminds us that seeking nothing but earthly food will leave you hungry again. And I have proof, and you have proof. Anytime we get something, don't we want more? It may be good for a little bit the promotion, the new job, more money, a better car, a better house. But over time, you start to think, man, I need something else, right? So this physical earthly food, aka the things of this world, they satisfy for a moment. It's like dumping chemical on some flies, right? It's going to work for a bit. But over time, it's going to go away, and you're going to be left hungry again. And it reminds us that seeking nothing but earthly food leaves us hungry. But if you go to Jesus to, to get your spiritual hunger taken care of, you'll never be hungry again. You will never be hungry again. If you seek and notice that you have a spiritual hunger, and you go to him, that lasts for eternity And he did that by living the perfect life that God makes us or commands us to live that we can't do no matter how hard we try. I mean, because remember, the Bible says the wages of sin is death, right? And the Bible also tells us all of us sin. So we're all, I mean, we fall short on one point of the law. We fall short of it all. So there's not a lot going for us there, right? There's not a lot of hope there. But in going to Jesus to have this spiritual need, the spiritual hunger met, there's all the hope in the world for that. And he did that by living the perfect life for us. He died the death, took on the punishment that we deserve. So in closing, I want to ask everybody this, but specifically if you are a Christ follower, I want to leave you with this contemplation for today. And don't worry, I'm going to be contemplating myself, and I have been for some time. Why do you seek a relationship with God? What is your motivation to being in relationship with God? Is it because, like the crowd, you want things to go well for you? Is it because you have some needs, some earthly needs that need to be met? And again, unfortunately, sometimes I identify with that a little bit more than what I would like to, right? Well, my prayer for us this morning is that we would love God for who he is, knowing that he already loved us. If you were in sin, he still loves you. He still bids you to come to him. Why do you seek a relationship with God? What are your motivations behind it? And I just want you to remember that it's a constant battle. We have to constantly be working to remember that God is for God and not necessarily only for us, right? And you will fall short, and you will be tempted, and you will fail. But Jesus takes care of that for you. And uh, you're not going to be able to do that on your own, so I challenge you to get plugged into community and tell them how you struggle and let them walk with you through it. And I'm going to close with, if you're an unbeliever, the only thing I want to do is invite you to come to Christ. You have a spiritual hunger. Even if you can't see it, you have one. And you can feel it, you just don't know what it is. Don't let the things of this world poorly do the job that only God can do. Because after all, they do a poor job of what only God can do. Know that while you were dead in your sins, Christ died for sinners. And I also want to leave you, if you're an unbeliever, with this. There's a warning here. There are consequences, just like the crowd, for turning your backs on truth and on Christ. And my prayer for you this morning is that you would know that the fountain is full and he invites you even now, right now, to come to him. And he says in the same chapter a little bit later, all that the Father gives to me will come to me and those who come to me I will never cast out. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we need you. All of us fall short in many ways and James tells us we stumble. We stumble in many ways but Father, we thank you that we have the ability to come to you anyway. I pray that we wouldn't feel guilty about the things in our heart, but rather we would be convicted and come to you and unload those burdens. We thank you that you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins so we can come to you as sinners. I just pray that you would help us, including me, to not seek you for the wrong motivations. That we would seek you for who you are because that is ultimately for our good and knowing that you will always take care of us. You will always meet our needs in one way or another, whether that's spiritual or physical. And we thank you for that. I pray that you would remind us of, our, of your grace when, you, when we fall short because we will fall short. Father, I pray that you would help us to be in authentic community with each other so we're not doing this alone because you never told us to do this on our own. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you for everything that you do for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.